John chapter 11, if you want to go there with me, if you have your, actually John, um, I'm so used to saying that, been in John chapter 11 for a while, chapter 12. We started there this morning in John chapter 11, but we, but we soon moved into chapter 12 this morning, and I want to return for a few more thoughts. Um, it's the challenge of preaching, especially when you write your sermons like I do, and I, I find I need to do this. I need to write out what God is burdening my heart with about the text and and a lot of times I have far more to say than I want to take the time for if I, if I said it all. Um, it might be 12.30 or 12.45 on Sunday morning before we left, but I praise God for the, the wonderful things we find in His Word when we read and think carefully about what's happening. And um, so I come back tonight to the passage we looked at and, and ended with this morning in chapter 12. So I'm going to start reading in John 12, verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment and made, uh, made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, verse 7, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. And verse 9 says, When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Can I afford it? Can I afford it? It's often our first thought when it comes to uh, when we sense the Lord may want us to give something or give something away or be especially generous with our giving. Can I afford it? It's the, it's the thought that we quickly turn to. When it comes to serving, the thought is, do I have time for that? Or maybe the, the statement in your mind is, I don't have time for that. Or maybe, I don't think I'm gifted for that. Or, I don't think I can do that. Can I really do that? That wasn't Mary's question. That was not where Mary's mind went. Hers was a self-forgetful gift of worship. Uh, I called it this morning an extravagant gift, and it was. 
an extravagant gift that certainly was a costly one for her to give. About a year's worth of wages is what that nard, that a pound of perfume was worth. Something we learn from the text here is that if, if you give your best to the Lord, some people may misunderstand you. If you give generously to the Lord, some people may look at you sideways. And, um, and it may not just be about your giving. If you give of yourself or you, or you make, make it a practice to be faithful in God's church, and you have other people who say, hey, come and do this with me, and you say, I can't do that. I'm going to church Sunday. I want to be with God's people. I want to hear the preaching of God's word. I want to go worship. And people look at you funny, you know, and think, what? what's wrong with you? So if you're extravagant and you're giving, or if you're faithful to the Lord, people may misunderstand you. You may even find yourself criticized and in fact, we saw it from Judas in verses 4 and 5. It was, of course, a self-serving criticism from Judas. He was there with Jesus, but he wasn't a true disciple. He was one of the disciples, and he was one who spent time around Jesus and should have known better and should have believed. And don't we know people like that? I know people like that, some dear people, even in my own family, who should know the Lord because they know better. They know the truth. They know they know the difference between good and evil and, and sin and righteousness, and they know what God's Word says, and yet it baffles our minds, doesn't it, when we know people like that and they choose to turn their back on the truth. That was Judas. He was about to betray Jesus. He was the one who cared for and helped himself to the money bag. He cared for it only, only as it cared for him. He saw to that, says verse 6. So when Mary broke this costly container, this pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, and poured it on Jesus' feet, Judas scolds her for her extravagant act of worship toward Jesus. Of course, Judas' scolding was an act. It wasn't, it wasn't that he was concerned about the poor, we're told. What about the poor, he said, when he didn't really care about the poor, but he really, he really only cared about himself. And that is the deceitfulness of sin on full display. Do you realize that? Um, this is... This is how you make some sense of when you share the gospel with someone, you try to live for Christ in front of those who need Christ, and you try to explain that if you'll trust Christ with your life, he will come in and change you from the inside out and, and know you will not be rescued from all your trials and troubles, but you'll know the joy of the Lord is your strength. And it just seems like people have a veil pulled over their minds they can't understand or don't believe it. And often this is why. It's, it's the veil of the darkness that sin causes, the blindness that sin causes. It's the deceitfulness of sin the Bible talks about. Judas only cared for himself. He couldn't see anything else. He couldn't see the truth that was on display before him. He couldn't hear the truth that was being preached and proclaimed and taught by Jesus right to him and the other disciples.
We noted this morning how Mary wanted to worship Jesus. She wanted to worship him then and there, now. She didn't want to wait for the funeral. She wanted to worship him right there. She'd been hearing uh, from Jesus teaching and hearing him speak about his impending death. And so she wanted to she wanted to bring the flowers to him before the funeral, so to speak. She wanted to honor him now. You know, that's how God wants us to serve him. He doesn't want us to look forward to someday when we will serve him, to someday when we will honor him, to someday when we will give when we have more, to someday when I will give of the resources that I have when I have more than I have now. God wants us to give of ourselves now. He doesn't want us looking down the road. He wants us to look at today and what he's called us to do today and how he's called us to honor him and serve him today. And that's what Mary was doing unabashedly. Judas, he'd also been hearing Jesus speak of his impending death, and, and he has a different reaction. He's getting antsy. Think about it. He's keeping the money bag, and if something happens to Jesus, they're probably going to take the funds, and in his mind, they're going to take the funds and divide them up and go their separate ways. Of course, he's scheming in his own mind at the time, and he wants to get out of this deal with a little profit to show for his time spent before it's too late. His totally different reaction than from Mary because the veil of darkness, the sin, the sin blindness that he has. So Judas says, what about the poor? What a waste. We could have sold that perfume for 300 denarii. Jesus responds, verse 7, look at it. Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Jesus sees this extravagant, sacrificial gift for what it is, an act of worship, an an unrestrained, self-forgetful act of worship on Mary's part. Mary is anointing Jesus with this ointment that would typically be used for someone's burial. And she wants to give it, again, she wants to give it before the grave, before he's gone to the cross. She wants to worship Jesus now. And Jesus says in verse 8, For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. So is Jesus suggesting that the poor should be neglected? He is not. But what he is saying is that there would not be much more time for worshiping him in such a tangible way as Mary demonstrated. On the other hand, they would always have time to minister to the poor. Bible commentator, uh, preacher, teacher, R.C. Sproul, he's now with the Lord, he illustrated it this way when he writes of an account that, that actually kind of lands close to home for us geographically. He says, I knew a minister who labored for decades in the inner city of Cleveland, Ohio. 
He worked among the poor, the oppressed, and those who were addicted to drugs and all kinds of violence. Oddly, he had one associate pastor after another. The average tenure of the ministers who came alongside to help him was two years. I asked him, why don't they last? He said the problem was that they quickly became disillusioned. They came out of seminary and they came to the ghetto because they wanted to labor for Christ where people were hurting, but soon they became depressed and left. I asked him, why have you been able to stay all this time? He said, because of the words of Jesus, the poor you have with you always. I replied, every time I've ever heard anyone quote that, it was cited as an excuse to neglect the poor, not to minister to the poor. He said, well, what I understand Jesus to say is that I will never be able to eliminate poverty. Therefore, when I came here, I had no expectation that I was going to solve all these problems. I never thought I would eliminate poverty or get rid of the drug traffic or end unemployment among my parishioners. I realize that for every person that is brought out of the ghetto, more are brought in. If we get one person off of drugs, five more get hooked here. My mission isn't to get rid of the poor or to get rid of all these problems. My mission is to minister to people who are suffering from these things while they are here and while I am here. Learn from that. I think that's a, a helpful reminder. And that's the perspective God's Word calls us to. We will not solve all the world's problems Unless all the world turns to Christ. And yet the Bible says we know that's not going to happen, don't we? But it doesn't mean we quit. It's like wide is the way to destruction. Narrow is the way to eternal life. God has not called us to eliminate suffering. He's not called us to eliminate the poor the jobless or the drug addicted, but he has called us to remain faithful and to serve him with what he has entrusted to us. That's the perspective that God's word calls us to. We won't solve all this world's problems, but God has given us the ability to help many people, to point many people to our Savior, many people who are suffering And most importantly, as we serve the needs of hurting people and troubled people, we are serving Jesus Christ. Not only do we seek to meet the needs of the needy, but we also serve to show them our Savior. Along with the help that we offer to those who are in need, we offer hope. We offer the hope of the gospel the confidence that, we, that we'll know we're going to be with our Savior in eternity if we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. As we serve the needs of people, God is using His people in the multifaceted gifts that He has given us. The number of people in this room and the different gifts that we have is an incredible example, I think, of how God gifts the church 
to meet the needs of various people and many people throughout our communities. The ultimate need, of course, is the need for Jesus Christ and faith in Him and forgiveness of sin. And yet God doesn't want us to turn a blind eye away from those who are in need and give them help when there is help that can be given. And with that help, we want to give hope, and that's what God has gifted us for. And so when we look at Martha's service to Jesus, it is instructive also. She serves in her way. She served Jesus. She honored Him. She worshiped Him in her service to Him. And I want you to realize that, church. As you serve the Lord, you worship It shouldn't be the only way you worship. You should come apart to worship. I've heard it said you should come apart to worship before you come apart. (laughs) Come together with God's people to worship, to feed on the Word, to be taught by the Word. But don't sit and soak, as I said this morning. Serve also. Worship in the way that you serve, just as you worship in the way that you sit under the teaching of the Word. Both are worship. Both are needful. So Martha's service to Jesus is instructive. Mary honored Jesus in another way. That was that extravagant act of worship by way of the costly perfume she poured out on him. But Mary also shows us the importance of self-forgetfulness in our giving and worship. Mary and Martha's gifts were both important. Their service and their, their extravagant act of worship. But in both, there ought to be a measure of self-forgetfulness. And when we seek to serve the Lord with our resources that He has entrusted to us and with our time and with the talents that He has entrusted to us and the gifts that He has given to us, we ought to, we ought to be self-forgetful. We ought to give in a way that we're not serving to get recognition from others. We're not serving to get an attaboy from from our Lord and Savior, although we do want to hear that good and uh, uh, well done, good and faithful servant in heaven. But we ought to serve to honor Him, serve to worship Him. Mary forgot about her own financial needs and how she gave. She also forgot about and didn't give a care for what others thought of her. Her coming to the meal and letting down her hair and wiping Jesus' feet, all of those things, a potential embarrassment if she cared, uh, cared about what people thought about her. She did not let that stop her from worshiping God. Will you let the culture around you stop you from worshiping your God? What if... What if the climate becomes very difficult, the political climate, the governmental climate? What if laws are enacted to tell us that we cannot preach the Bible because that's called hate speech? What if that happens? Will we refuse to be silenced or will we bury our heads in shame? So we have here these powerful examples of service to Jesus, worship offered to Him, as they honored Jesus that day with this meal, and then when Mary poured out this costly ointment on Jesus, and as Martha served. We have wonderful, powerful examples here to follow. But there's also a negative example. And we learn from negative examples also, don't we? 
Uh, we also uh, having uh, having a son with us today. I think of family things often, or a little bit more than normal, maybe. But I, I was thinking when people would say, "You have eight kids. How do you raise eight kids?" And I would often say, half jokingly, maybe more than half serious, uh, "You don't raise eight kids. You raise four kids, and they raise the other four." Um, and the way that that works is the younger four see what the older four go through and go, "I am not doing that." That yeah, works. So negative examples can be powerful. Obviously, we see Judas and his selfishness, his unbelieving heart, and it's exposed by his uh, voicing his ridicule at Mary. And John, the Apostle John, tells us just why Judas said what he did. We know it. He'd been stealing from the money bag which had been entrusted to him to care for. And he did care for it, but only because he cared about himself. He didn't care about the needy. He only cared for his own needs or his own perceived needs. But Judas is not alone, is he? You realize that Judas is not alone in the text? Look at verse 9. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came... It doesn't say they came to worship Jesus. They came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus. I want to see this living dead man for myself, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. The people get word that Jesus is here, and they begin to gather, and not because they want to follow him, they want to see the excitement, they want to be a part of the action. They want to be a part of the big news. What's going on? They weren't really interested in doing good in this situation. They weren't really interested in following Jesus necessarily. They were just, well, what do you call it? You call it rubbernecking? Don't you hate it when that happens on the highway? You get stuck in traffic for 15 minutes, bumper to bumper, stop and go, stop and go. You finally get to the obstruction, and you realize... There's no obstruction. It's on the other side of the interstate, and everybody in front of you had to slow down because a few people decided to slow down and look. As I've known to say, what in the world? What in the world is going on? That's what these people were doing. Oddly, we had something like that happen on our street today. Luke was outside doing something on his car, And I looked outside, and I saw Luke looking down the street and the neighbor directly across the street, out by the road looking down the street. And I saw two more neighbors down the street looking down the street. I was like, what's going on? So I went out and joined them. (laughs) I couldn't see what was going on. They saw what was going on. Somebody uh, lost control, driver got incapacitated or something, sideswiped a few mailboxes on the opposite side of the road, and evidently, we think, crashed into a house at the end of our street. Um, uh, Carolyn saw it in some of the news real briefly after that, so... I, um, some folks seriously injured in that. But what happened? People went out to look. They went out to see what happened. Some, went down, somebody, some people ran down the road to see, maybe to help. And um, So here are these onlookers. And because of the attention Jesus is gaining, we see some others who, uh, like Judas, can't forget themselves. 
They're, they're there to get a little bit of excitement. Let's go see this man, Lazarus, who they say was dead and raised to life. An incredible miracle, yes, absolutely. It had been worked by Jesus in bringing Lazarus back to life. And, and though the religious authorities knew of these miracles, they admitted that he was doing signs. They still insisted on unbelief and denial. Again, it reminds us of the power of sin to blind the heart, to blind the mind from seeing who Jesus is and believing in him. And you know what needs to happen next? If you're going to deny the evidence, you also have to get rid of the evidence. And so look at verses 10 and 11. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death also. Again, from me, a what in the world is going on? Put Lazarus to death also? What did he do? He's an innocent bystander. Well, because on account of him, says verse 11, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Well, isn't this something? Some of these people who came to see Lazarus, the big news, who came for a little bit of excitement, were converted and saw for themselves who Jesus was and left believers. But these leaders and so-called religious leaders, they're not only making plans to kill Jesus like we saw in chapter 11, now they're making plans to kill Lazarus too because we've got to get rid of the evidence. No doubt Lazarus had been a powerful witness for Jesus, and so he becomes the next target of those who are only looking out for themselves. And what powerful lessons we have here in the text today. Some humbling lessons, some challenges to our hearts and minds. The proper response to Jesus seen in Mary and in Martha and even in Lazarus too is how they gathered to honor Jesus to worship him from the bottom of their hearts. That's the proper response. And we see plenty of other examples of people going the opposite direction of that. The challenge to us is that God wants a people who love him and delight in him and long to know him more and seek to know him more from his word people who willingly offer their worship and their praise and their thanksgiving to him from the bottom of their grateful hearts without a thought for what the watching world thinks of them. Often, though, we find ourselves looking at our worship of God for what we can get from it. Have you ever heard that? Or maybe you've said that. I want to go to church today because I want to I want to get excited, or I want, to be, I want to be given something. Or, have you ever left church and said, I didn't get anything from that? I can't remember who said it. I've written it down somewhere, but I've often repeated it. And I pray that it would be true of us. The saying goes like this. 
a maturing Christian is easily edified. A maturing Christian, a growing Christian is easily edified. I want you to know, you didn't know this maybe, so let me break the news to you. You do not have the best pastor in the world. You're allowed to laugh at that. You do, but but I'm serious. You don't have the best pastor in the world. You don't have the best preacher in the world. You don't have the best theologian in the world. Look around. You don't have the best church in the world because we're all cracked pots, was what I was going to say, cracked pots. You said sinners, yes. God is gracious to us, doesn't he? And he makes something out of cracked pots. He makes beautiful things out of cracked pots. Often we find ourselves looking at our worship of God for what we can get from it. We might say, well, that was a moving time of worship. I I am so refreshed and excited now. Or it felt good to worship that way. And yet, sometimes you might leave and say, I didn't get anything from that. Because you don't have the best pastor in the world and you don't have the best church in the world and you're not the best person in the world. (laughs) And yet what God wants for us is he wants us to be growing so that as we worship him, we're easily edified, we're easily strengthened. And and we get a, a sliver of truth from what your poor preacher can give you from the text, the text speaks to you. The Spirit takes the Word of God and uses it in your heart in spite of me. And you leave refreshed because you're easily edified, because you want to grow in your faith, and you refuse to be discouraged when you gather with God's people as God's Word commands you to. You see, God doesn't call us to come to worship Him so that we can be excited or have a moving time of worship, although that can happen, or to feel good after worship, although that can happen. God calls us to worship him not for how it makes us feel, but because of who he is, in spite of how we feel. Because there are going to be Sundays when you do not want to be here. Take it from your pastor. Occasionally, not often, I really can't remember the last time I felt this way, but there have been times over the years when it's like, I do not want to go to church today. But I'm preaching, so I better be there. And God never fails to encourage and edify and strengthen. We need this reminder, like we see in this self-forgetful worship And this faithful service. We heard Jesus say this back in John 4, verses 23 and 24, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. From the bottom of your heart, worship God. Not because it makes you feel good, even though sometimes it does. 
Not because you feel refreshed when you worship, even though sometimes it does, because sometimes you may not be refreshed when you worship. Worship God because He deserves to be worshipped. And you need this reminder of who God is and who you are in light of eternity and all that God has given you through His Son's shed blood. What God wants is an offering of worship that flows from an uninhabited heart, uninhibited heart, uninhabited, inhabited by the Holy Spirit, uninhibited, unrestrained. Hard praise. God wants your heart, which means He wants your all, and He wants you to worship Him with no regard to what you will get in return and no regard to what the world thinks of you. And so if the world tries to shut down God's church, we need to learn to stand with boldness with the truth, come what may, and refuse to to be silent with the truth of God's Word. God desires of you, as you head into a new week, God desires of you your very best. Do your work as best as you can in a most God-glorifying way that you can. Speak and work and interact with people in a way that glorifies God. And if you give to Him your best, He'll have all of you and you'll have all of Him and His blessings will be yours. I praise God for the truths of His Word before us tonight.